Welcome to Radio Free Oz. Oz is back. Oz is reborn. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Uh, at the table, one of the Oz originals and, and the man that makes the table seating half the Firesign Theater, David Osman. Dave, Yo, glad, glad, glad to have you here. This is really special for me because, you know, back in 1966 when Oz started on KPFK in Los Angeles on um, what was then, Pacific, still is, Pacifica Radio, um, Dave was, Dave, you had just left the station as program manager, correct? I left it um, almost, I guess, a year before. I'd, I'd been working at ABC for a while before you motorcycled into the station and we did the big marathon. And- yeah, yes, well, actually, I'll give them the background. Okay, yeah. It's 1966. 1966. Uh, I've just, uh, three or four months before, I'd just come back from Europe where I'd been on a Ford Foundation's uh, scholarship or fellowship to this place in Berlin called the Literarisches Colloquium Berlin. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, a, a, it was an attempt by the Ford Foundation to pump culture back into Berlin because, of course, the Nazi had killed anybody that could spell culture, particularly if they had a name like Kulturstein. Oh, you know, yeah. If, if yeah. your name was like Moise Kulturstein. Kulturberg. They Kulturberg, were all gone, yeah. And you were the best writer and violinist on the block, you were dead. Yeah. So they had to pump people back in. So... They, they, from America, they sent me, basically. And from England, they sent Tom Stoppard, uh, the very young Tom Stoppard, Pierce Paul Reed, who then wrote Alive later on, and Derek Marlowe, who wrote Dandy and Aspic and all sorts of, did a lot of Bond rewrites and stuff like that. And there we were all in this former Nazi love house. That's right, <laughs> yes. It was a, an SS love house that they had used to make perfect children. Uh, some of whom are still alive, probably running the Austrian government. And I was there doing all this stuff, and I won't get into total detail, but I made a movie and I did a play, and I went off to, I went looking for hashish and Sufis in the Middle East. More of that later. This is, we just want to get back. I'm just giving you the ba- basic background. So I get back to America, and I come through New York, and the whole, um, you know, uh, Andy Warhol, you know, a velvet underground, not digging them at all, not my drug, and getting end up in in L.A. and on a motorcycle, right? I had a Ariel Square Four, and I had I was wearing Paisley shirts, and I was really a, I was a boho. I was not a hippie because I really wasn't. I was kind of a hippie, but I'd been up in San Francisco and I saw the hippies coming to life, and I thought that they were all completely juvenile, <laughs> and I'd already gone through all that stuff. So, come down. I brought my movie Flowers with me. I end up on the on the uh, marathon on KPFK in July of 66. And the station manager, who, uh, unlike the ones that have followed him, was not a Marxist or, or, a, or a this or a that, had no politics, just new marketing, said, get a show. So I got the show, Radio Free Us, right? And it started July 24th, 1966. And here it is, March 21st, 2010. And we are back. Back. Back, back, back. We are back. In an entirely different world. Like David had said in the pre-show. The pre-show. People call up, I can't hear you. I'm streaming and there's nothing there. Oh, okay. I guess we have to satisfy the needs of the people. And um, time is different. Did we come on at 9 o'clock? Who cares? There's nobody sitting there with a stopwatch. Or you're on the air. We're on the air anytime we want to be. All right? I guess that's right. Yes, yes. Because we we're, be. Because we're Radio Friaz. And Radio Friaz, every Sunday night, 9 to 11... Pacific Standard Time, which means if you're listening in New York, it's midnight. Mm. midnight. They, they love midnight in New York. Well, we are, we are, we are the dark side of the Prairie Home Companion. You know, mm-hmm. we're the, you know, we're the, we're the anti-keeler. 
You know, there are no shy Norwegians on this show. Mm. There are no uh, uh, grocery products that appear in any kind of kitchen I ever bake in. If you read that all together, the anti-keeler really is the antic healer. The antic healer. David. That's you, man. That's me. I'm the yeah, anti-healer. There you go. And no, nothing down on Garrison. I love him very dearly. Shyest man I have ever met in my life. He's like eight foot four and can't look you in the eye. But he's really good. Nobody eight foot four could look you in the eye. Well, he could try. He'd I mean, he's supposed down. to. He's on his knees. He's Come supposed on. to be a communicator. All right. So uh, it's midnight, and uh, but you know, it's prime time somewhere on the internet. Always, right? In fact, let me just check here. Hold on. See. Right now, it is morning drive time in Tashkent, Kazakhstan. So it's mm. time for me to give uh, the uh, traffic report. Uh-oh. Because, yeah. okay. All right. Uh, all of you going northeast on El Kazar, mm-hmm. well, there is some sort of an accident at the corner of Majul and El Kazar. So I would take the Bahrain Majud turnoff uh-huh. past the bike factory, or is that the weapons of mass destruction factory? <laughs> it depends on, you know, which satellite you're looking through, and then come back through uh, uh, God is Great, and then you're back there at Samarkand Passway, and you're on your way going to wherever That's you want. That's very good. Yeah, is the traffic is very heavy there at this time. Very, everything's the heavy in Tashkent right there you now. Go. Very, very heavy. <laughs> big so, trucks. So, we, you know, we like to satisfy people from around the world, and we'll be doing traffic reports from just about everywhere where there's traffic. By the way, talking about traffic, which I was, I spent some time in China last year, and you haven't seen traffic. You don't know traffic until you've been in Beijing. Mm. Like, any time of the day. It doesn't matter when. Any time of the day. Oh, my God. It was just... I get claustrophobic. Do you like do you like traffic jams, Dave? I no. I had to get out of Los Angeles when you know the first car came into the city. I that was, was out of there. I was, oh, oh, I can see what's coming. I'm out of here. That reminds me. I bought some land in Mendocino many, 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 many years ago. Mendocino is like up in California. For those of you listening in Tashkent, and uh, I bought it from these people. I said, "Well, why are you moving?" They said, "Too many people." Too many people. There wasn't anybody within like five miles. Mm, but mm-hmm. somehow, I guess they had seen a car. Or yeah, they had seen yeah. somebody put up a, a restaurant or do something like that. They left. They went to Idaho and, you know, um, made goat milk or something like that. They're and still there. That's the escape hatch for the rest of America's Idaho. If you want to see anybody ever again, go to go, Idaho. Go to Idaho. Because even Montana's filling with a bunch of Hollywood types. It's Idaho. <laughs> Idaho. Nobody cares about Idaho. No, right. P- personally, I'd rather live in Idaho than Utah. I'm not putting Utah down. Mm. I just wouldn't live there. That's another thing altogether. So, anyway, Oz is back. We started in 19. 19- and around Oz in the fall of 1966 formed the Firesign Theater. All of us were connected with KPFK in one way or another. I'd known um, uh, Phil Proctor at Yale. Uh, Dave Osmond had been running the station and just left. Phil Austin was producing my show and was doing drama, you know. The, the difference was 1966 FM, right? What was FM, Dave? What, what did it mean to people? Oh, that- FM. I, 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 I'm... I was an FM pioneer. Yes, you were. FM was about five years old That's when right. I got into the FM business in 1959. How'd yeah. you get into it? I started radio in New York City as um, as a summer replacement announcer. Wow! And I had I did um, classical music, and there were a lot of live programs on on WBAI. That's was, New York. Yeah, New York. that was the Pacifica station. Then I came out to LA after a couple of years uh, in New York, but we did almost everything was live. Yeah, and uh, it was a it was an exciting atmosphere because you know. Um, 
John Cage would come into the studio and, you know, take really? it over and yeah. do stuff like that. The American Communist Party would come into the studio. They did that, actually. The, the, the Communist Party, the last convention was 1960. And, uh, and I never forget, you know, these like four or five or six guys all in gray suits with the hats, you know. Watching they were them. all FBI of anyway. Course. They're the ones that gave yeah. the money first. Let's have a donation. Here, here's $50. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's my camera. So. And, uh, and uh, they were, they edited the, you know, the, the whatever it was of the Communist Party and the six or seven people who cared listened, you know. Oh, listen, honey, they are doing the Communist Party. It's wonderful. Let's listen. What, honey? I don't know. I'm asleep already. So they were doing Communist Party. They were basically just playing, when it came to music, though, they were just playing dead Germans. Um, pretty basically. much a little show business, some Frank Sinatra. But, we're not but, talking extremos But here. mainly dead Germans. Yeah. yeah. So I come along and they give me the show, uh, which I um, call, dubbed Radio Free Oz. And I'd just come back from Europe where I'd been surrounded with all of this rock and roll. I mean, it was it had come to America. Actually, when I was in the Army, I remember the first time I ever heard, uh, you know, Bob Dylan was when I was walking the streets of San Antonio when I was in the Army. And I thought, I got to get out of this Army because this is a lot better than what I'm doing. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I broke, what, what um, Cat Stevens. I played the first Van Morrison. It was that TB Sheets, the 19-minute cut. And I started putting all of these weird people on the air. And around it formed the Firesign Theater. So you are with us now on the reincarnation, the re, what is it, the, with a reinvention. Reinvention. Of Radio Free Oz. And whereas we were in L.A. then, which was a wonderful town, I, I, I was there for 43 years. I will never bash L.A. Anybody that gives me the L.A. bash just don't get Well, it. I have a little gift for you, Pete. Really? I have a couple of things for you tonight. Well, what's, that, what's that? In, in memory of those wonderful days, yes. you'll, you'll, I'm sure, remember this, this moment in in our history, oh, you and me at oh, the Magic look. Mushroom. Oh my! In 1967. It's very hard for me to have, hold this up for the microphone <laughs> for anybody to have any sort. But it's 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 Dave your, and I. Your job as a radio guy is to describe it to we the. Know what we're going to do? No, what? we're going to get a we're going to get a photo of it and put it part of a slideshow later on on the, on the slide. There that's we go. Wonderful. Well, that's for you. Oh, that's for me. Let me that's, put it over there for just the, a second. That's the memory bank, so yeah. you just know who we uh, where we came from. So, and you have something else because you do. said too. I you know, do. You I said do. too. I remember. I remember. Well, gifts. there you I go. This is uh, this is because Peter Bergman has only recently come to the Pacific Northwest, as he just said, from forty-three years. In, Ra- is it a raincoat? City of smog and all of that. And because we have a great celebration that's coming up, only a only a few months from now. Really? And what is It'll that? Will be the thirtieth anniversary of the uh, the very famous volcano explosion at Mount Helens, and I'd like to present you with this souvenir plastic volcano filled with genuine ash, so that on the 30th, I will hope you will bury it or do something similar you know, Do you it. know what it looks like? Yeah. What? It looks like that wonderful mud sculpture of the mountain that Richard, the crazy Richard Dreyfus, does <laughs> oh, yes, in Close Encounters. And I, this is going to stay right here in the studio oh, okay. for two reasons. It's because you gave it to me and because I wouldn't put it in my house. <laughs> so, so anyway. There you go. So here we are back. Now, All right. There, this is now, we're coming to you from Whidbey Island. I was going to like be real cute and say oh, it was the, it's the Emerald Island. We will re- refer to it as the Emerald Island from now on. And this blew you studios as Oz Central. But this is Whidbey Island, where I moved, um, came here on Thanksgiving, and it is the most extraordinary place. Oh, 
Okay, so I'm going to peruse USA Today, which I like to refer to as Mick Newspaper. I love USA Today because it's read by all sorts of people, including all those traveling salesmen and people on the road who stay in embassy suites and motel sixes or whatever and pick this up in the morning and get their shot of reality before they get on the road or back on the plane. It's, it's a great happening. Okay, abuse of pain pills concerns the Pentagon. 3.8 million prescriptions. That's what uh, uh, that's what the boys are getting over there. And the military doctors wrote these 3.8 million prescriptions for pain relief for servicemen just last year, more than four times the 866,773 doses handed out in 2001, according to data from the Pentagon Health Office. If we can believe any data coming out of the Pentagon Health Office or anything where the word Pentagon is the prefix, well, let's just give them the shadow of the doubt because they've certainly covered this nation from time to time with the shadow of the doubt. All right, military officials and analysts say the increase in the use of narcotic pain medication reflects the continuing toll on ground troops fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Often, though, more than one combat through all, often more than one combat deployment. Why am I not surprised? Can you think of any more painful than joining the National Guard? Well, actually, I joined the reserves long back pre-Vietnam, so I wouldn't go to Vietnam. And now you join the National Guard, so you don't have to go anywhere, and you find yourself going back to Iraq or Afghanistan time and time again until they kill you or you just get addicted to pain pills and they come home and write a story about you on the cover of McNewspaper. Okay, but they also say the pain comes from the fact that there are a lot of wounded and that mar uh, marine soldiers and Marines develop aches and pains carrying heavy packs, body armor, and weapons over rugged and mountainous terrain. Yes, they are carrying heavy packs and mountain and armor and weapons over mountainous terrain, constantly surrounded by hostiles. I think we call them insurgents. Insurgents are like, they're not terrorists yet because they just live there. You know, they got rugs and opium and cows, and they, they just live there, and they don't like the fact that the Americans use uh, thugs from the local warlords to go in and do the dirty business, and then they send in our poor Marines and soldiers to to what, clean up, build schools? I'm not sure. Everybody's shooting at them, and we don't know why. No wonder they're taking pain pills. I mean, look, we're in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. The, the British tried to move things around in Afghanistan and got thoroughly whopped. They could, they could take over India, but they couldn't take over Afghanistan. Why? Because Afghanistan really isn't a country. First of all, what is it? It's rocks, rugs, and opium. Now, uh, that's, that's kind of fourth century to start with. Second of all, it's divided between all these various clans, all very nice people, all speaking different languages and hating each other. And so we go in there to try and put things together because we saved them from the Taliban. We blew up the Taliban training bases because they were responsible for the Twin Towers. Of course, nine out of 11 of the people who took the towers down were Saudi Arabians, Wahhabis. We didn't go in and bomb Saudi Arabia because then we would disturb George Bush, who was walking hand in hand with some Saudi prince. This is the man who, when he isn't walking hand in hand with some Saudi prince, is looking into the eyes of Putin, a proto-dictator, and seeing the future and seeing a dear friend. I don't know. You know, when a president is a recovering alcoholic and a recovering cocaine addict, and not doing both about either, you have to wonder about what he sees in anybody's eyes. So, pain pills, uh, pain pill abuse in the, um, in the Army. Not to say in the Navy here. I don't know if there's as much pain in the Navy. They're just floating around waiting to get the orders to send some missile somewhere to clear up, what, uh, turn some uh, aspirin factory into a 
bomb-making facility. It's hard. Things get really, really complicated. I can't keep up with all of it. So we're in Afghanistan, and we're in Iraq. We don't really belong there, you know. I mean, I support the troops 100%. One of the ways I want to support the troops is I want to bring them home so that they can defend this nation and do what troops are supposed to do, keep us safe from all the what? Hordes of Chinese that are going to invade us. I mean, uh, the Iranians who are going to send over missiles, the North Koreans. You know, worried about the North Korean missiles. I love this. I read an article about uh, three or four years ago, maybe three years ago, when the when the North Koreans remember they tested that missile missile and sent it towards Japan. Do you know what the Do you know what the warhead was on that missile? It was a radio playing the North Korean national anthem. Yeah, now th- this is for true. Okay, it's a wonderful world we live in. As long as we still live in it. Okay, Pepsi is dropping out of schools. Now, you know, this country is basically so overweight. I mean, we could liposuction all the overweight people in this country and use that material either to put fat on all the starving people in the rest of the countries, or we could, as they did in Miami, they found out that liposuction centers were selling their fat to people who were rendering it down to make biodiesel for cars. Right. Get off my fat ass and drive in a car powered by my fat ass. It's a wonderful, wonderful world, and it just keeps coming back on itself. Driving in both directions simultaneously on the Mobius Strip is what I like to call it. Pepsi-Cola said they are voluntarily removing high-calorie sweetened drinks from schools for kids up to age 18 in more than 200 countries by 2012. How come it takes them two years to do that? All they have to say is, hey, Kibosh the sugar in the schools. But now it's going to take them a while because they got to squeeze that last penny out of those poor kids. Pepsi is responding to demands from activists that food and beverage companies not offer kids products linked to childhood obesity. Hmm, that makes sense. Well, Pepsi's behind Coca-Cola. They did it a little bit earlier, but here's the deal. Coca-Cola announced this month it won't sell sugar drinks in primary schools worldwide. Middle schools and high schools, ah, ha, ha, ha. That's okay. In fact, uh, Bruce Silverglade, Legal Affairs Director of the Center for Science and the Public Interest, said shame on Coca-Cola for insisting on targeting high school students in most countries around the world. Well, I mean, I'm Coca-Cola, there is grief over, over there in Atlanta because they no longer get to hook the kids at the age of four or five or six. They have to wait until they're in middle school. So a few of those kids may actually no longer be reachable because their parents got together with them and said, let's save your life. You never know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm always hopeful. So, okay, that's the front page. Now let's go to sports. Oh, I love this. Bans for low-grade rates urged. And there's a picture of Education Secretary Arne Duncan, who's eight foot four feet high and a former basketball player. He said it saved his life. Well, if U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan has his way, a dozen of the teams in the NCAA men's basketball tournament would be eligible to play, would not be eligible to play in it, including top-seeded Kentucky. In other words, there'd be less madness in March, okay? Duncan proposes teams with graduation rates of less than 40% be banned from postseason play. That's a low bar, Duncan said Tuesday. If you can't graduate two out of five of your student-athletes, how serious are you about academic, the academic part of your mission? He's absolutely right. I mean, uh, what is professional sports doing in higher education? I taught a, I taught a, um, of course, we're all at UCLA down in Los Angeles. And I got to know a lot of the teachers in the, in the undergraduate school. And they said that they were constantly being pressured to suborn their professional standards, to pass people who 
who didn't do the work to look to look the other way when they saw papers that were written for them. It totally was ruining their morale. I said, how do you do it? They said, well, we look to the graduate school for our props. We no longer consider the undergraduate school really that valid. So along comes Aaron Duncan and says, look, if you can't pass two out of every five of your, in quotes, student athletes, who are actually neither students nor athletes, they are basketball players in training, ready to get to the NBA. Okay, so let's say that we, we, we went with that. If you don't graduate 40% of these people, you don't play. Who wouldn't play in March Madness this year? Well, let's see. Arkansas Pine Bluff, they only graduate 29%. Baylor, 36%. Baylor's supposed to be such a hot school. California, I think that's Berkeley, 20%. Ah, help me. Clemson, 37%. Georgia Tech, 38%. Kentucky, 31%. Louisville, 38%. Maryland, 8%. Oh, my God. Well, why graduate at all? Missouri, 36%. New Mexico State, 36%. Tennessee, 30%. And Washington, my new state, 29%. Scandal. Well, what are you going to do about it? I know this. The people over in Europe think we are crazy. Can you imagine... Um, colleges at Oxford or Cambridge or the Sorbonne or the University of Bologna saying, we just can't wait to to get some of them famous cricket or soccer players in here because, you know, that's what it's all about. Now, we're the only educational system, higher educational system, that basically spends its time training people for professional athletics or what I call dreaming through other men's bodies. But don't worry, it's going to get better. We're going to get through all of this together.